Wee wee, don't tell me you're at mountain lakes with all of your friends. Wee wee, don't tell me you're gonna start talking about craft beer again. We're cracking wise on random craft beer news. Hanging out with brewers, owners, and monsters doing interviews. From the brew house stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington, this is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer live audience show and podcast. I decided to get into the candy making business, Chris. I'm gonna make these little ring-shaped candies with holes in the middle that come in all kinds of flavors, and they're packed in paper-wrapped aluminum foil rolls, and I'm gonna call them Life Davers. I'm Dave Basaraba, and here is your host, Chris Sindrick! All right. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, everybody. Boy, do we have a history-making show for you tonight. Yes, we have Nick Johnson, from my very own hometown of Cheney, Washington, Inland Aleworks as our special guest tonight. Welcome, Nick, to the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me. You bet. And as always, I'm joined by Dave Basaraba and Tim Hilton of Mountain Lakes Brewing Company. Good evening, gentlemen. What's the latest news with Mountain Lakes Brewing Company and the Spokane craft beer scene? Uh, one thing, we're getting ready for May, so... We have two May beers coming out. So if you can guess what they are, you win a prize, Chris. You have two May beers. So I would guess like that might be a My Bach and a... Uh, no, it's My Bach. Uh, it might be a Your Bach. Yeah, yeah. And then a uh, maybe the sixth... What is that? The Revenge of the Sixth beer. Right? Like, may the, may the, the fourth be with you beer. No, that's too dorky. Oh, so I don't know what the other one would be. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco think, de Mayo. Uh, what, do we, what do you drink on Cinco de Mayo? You drink like a Vienna lager or a Mexican lager? A Mexican yeah. lager, yep. Yep. We brewed it with Nick from Inland Ale. Did Works you really? Here. So yeah. you had a little collab coming out. Very yeah. nice. Yep. So how did that process go? How was it working with these guys, Nick? Was it, was it all right? Uh, yeah, I'm used to my little thrown-together uh, gigantic homebrew system, and going to a pretty automated setup was uh, was pretty nice. It was a real quick brew day, for sure. I'm usually about 10, 12 hours, and we were out of there at about six hours, maybe? Six, seven, yeah. Yeah, if that. Yep. So, yeah, it was... Uh, it was uh, a lot of fun. Cool. I really enjoyed it. And Just you, a bunch of grain water and a bottle of whiskey. That's... That's how you do it. That's all. That's yeah. all. <laughs> what a, uh, and, and you got a name, or is that going to come with the reveal? You know, we we can't know yet, or I think we can share it if Nick yeah. wants to share it. Yeah. Uh, well, we went. Uh, I had thought about it before that, and we were going to go with uh, El Cabong. El Cabong. Yeah, we were going to go with the uh, uh, the cartoon uh, character. I'm El so, Cabong I, is the crime fighting version of Quick Draw McGraw. McGraw yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's his alter ego. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's cool. And it so, wasn't taken, so that's your that's your name. El Cabong. Well, I mean, there's a couple El Cabong beers out there, but both of us, Inland Ale Works and Mountain Lakes, we're so massively large that we just really just had our attorneys call them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you, you fix that. Oh, yeah. No problem. You get a phone call from our attorneys, and it's like, ugh. Right. Fine, you can be Budweiser. No worries. <laughs> Cool. That's good. Anything else happening in the Spokane scene that we, we just, should know about? We just met with um, Iron Goat, uh, Greg Brandt, and I, and Precious Things sat down, and we put together a recipe for an upcoming collab in a couple weeks. We're going to brew for the multiplayer, the Washington Brewers Guild multiplayer collab, um, some sort of an IPA. Nice. Um, so the three of you, we were just talking about that on the last podcast, about you getting together with Iron uh, Goat to make a beer. Yep. So now it's happening. It's happening. Well, to start the show off, we like to ask important people who work in the craft beer industry questions about what they do and how they do it. It's called Not My Beer. Please welcome tonight's Not My Beer guest from Cheney's most revered Inland L Works, Nick Johnson. Thanks. Thanks a lot. 
Well, Nick, it's great to have you on the show. And if you don't know, uh, Nick and his daughter own uh, Inland Ale Works, uh, which is kind of cool. His daughter could not be here tonight, Emily, because she is working a very busy night in Cheney because it is final Thursday, which is the last Thursday of the quarter, which is a party in itself in Cheney, as well as St. Patrick's Day. So she, hopefully she's pouring lots and lots and lots of beer. And lots and lots and lots. Yes. Um, so she is there, but we have the... Uh, the glory of having Nick with us, and I'm excited because not only is he owner of Inland Ale Works, but he also is probably Spokane's most renowned, I would say, um, beer historian. So let's start there. Uh, how did your interest in beer begin? You were pretty young when that happened. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your 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 journey. Uh, yeah, probably 1975. I uh, started collecting beer cans as a hobby. Every kid in the neighborhood did it. That was probably one of the biggest, fastest-growing hobbies at the time. So it was just a matter of uh, walking walking the ditches and uh, eventually branching out, going out into the woods and finding old dumps and things like that and digging stuff up. And then uh, collectibles stuff, I mean, I always was really liked advertising things. Uh, it started out uh, digging through my grandmother's kitchen uh, drawers and finding old uh, beer can openers. So Goebel and Stroh's, because I grew up outside of Detroit, so it was a lot of... Uh, uh, those types of brewery stuff there. So I've got just went dug through there, stole all of her can openers that she had. So right. I kind of started that. Nice. Yeah, I have an old Yingling uh, can opener that my grandpap gave me. Okay. Uh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. I got from him when he passed away. So I can I can relate to that. Um, and so then, so this is a thing, right? We have uh, uh, can collecting is basically a thing. There is literally conventions around oh, yeah, there's, can, it's, it's, can collecting. Um, so tell us a little bit about your progression, because this has become, uh, not only you started when you were like 12. Yeah, I was like 12, yeah. 13. And, yeah. and it, but it's continued. So tell us a little bit about your progression and where it brought you and about, about that whole realm of can collection uh, you know, community. Okay. Uh, yeah. So like I said, started mid seventies, uh, when everybody else did and kind of collected and collected, uh, took a little hiatus in high school, how high school guys will do things like that. Uh, concentrate on other things. Uh, after high school, uh, everything went into a box. I, uh, joined the air force, uh, right out of high school and moved around the world and the country a little bit. Uh, once I finally got settled, I uh, was living in Florida at the time, uh, and had all of my, went up to, uh, back home, grabbed all my beer cans and went down there and I had beer cans on shelves in my dorm room and stuff like that on the base. Uh, and then there was a, a club there, the Gator Traders, uh, in Tampa, uh, joined that club and was kind of active in that. And the main, uh, beer can collect, it was the Beer Can Collectors Club of America. Uh, at one time they changed their name to be, to broaden it, I guess. Uh, they changed their name, but anyways, uh, so they have canventions every year. Uh, the little chapters throughout the country, and there's, uh, there isn't one in Spokane, surprisingly enough, because there's been people collecting here for a long time. Uh, there's a big chapter out in Seattle that I belong to, and there's actually one in Portland, too, uh, that I've gone to, and we'll do, and it's just, you just go there. We have like four shows a year. We have trade, uh, just basically a little trade show. Uh, people set up tables, bring their extra junk, and sell and trade, or whatever they want to do. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, and then the main, uh, the BCCA, the main uh, big club, uh, where they have a convention or canvention, they call it. Uh, they do that every year, and it's in a different city uh, all over, just all over the country. I've been to probably 12 of them uh, in the past. Uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. It's just basically the club takes over an entire hotel, so it's like you have 12 floors of nothing but people drinking and rooms open. They have room-to-room -room trading at night, and uh, it's just people's rooms open. You wander in and look at stuff and grab a beer and go to the next room and You'd start at the top, walk all the way down, and start back up again at the top. And right. this goes on literally all night long. And you would have, uh, from a historical perspective, um, cans were introduced about 1935 or Yeah, so. 1935, then they first, uh, that was when the first cans and uh, so, started coming And out. those would have been the punch, it was, what is that called? Uh, it's just a, just a flat top can, they refer to it, and they used a uh, church key or a can opener to open those. Right. So you would punch it open like you would a juice can, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, they, they started out with those, but actually Schlitz, they went to, uh, there was another version that they did, and it was actually, they referred to it as a cone top. It looked like a brake fluid can. Okay, so uh, those and a lot of smaller and uh, mid-regional breweries would use that because they could take their actual regular bottling line, adapt it, and they could cap these cans 
And then there's no deposit, no return, so it was just uh, went out the door and boom, it's gone. You don't have to worry about seeing it again. Right. So, the, but the bigger ones would use the flat tops because it was it was a separate canning line, so it was prohibitively expensive to start off with. Plus, when it first came out, uh, the equipment it was very there. They didn't make a whole bunch of it. They didn't know how popular it was going to be. So, really, a lot of the the biggest breweries were the ones that got first dibs on it because they wanted that. Uh, product out there just basically as advertising. I got so, Tim, what was it like when the first cans hit the market? <laughs> <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> he used to carry that. No, not and does. It's interesting because when you talk about beer can openers, uh-huh. um, you know the old ones have. If you still have them, they have the the bottle opener, and then the, on the other side is like the punch key yeah. and that's where that comes from is that it used to be to open your beer or a can or beer bottle right and normally you would when you go into the package store or whatever and grocery store and purchase those they would give you the opener there so right. it, it was a dual, dual use yeah. so if you were buying bottles or cans or whatever is this the same opener you'd use for your oil can uh, you, well, you could yeah because it had the it's the exact same kind open of, the beer first yeah. then the oil yeah, yeah. yeah. a little oil isn't going to hurt you yeah so you're in Michigan, like your kids could have taken your old collection and returned them for 10 cents a piece. They, right? Yes, they, yeah. well, they could have. Well, most of them, no, were pre, uh, way before they had the, uh, the container law. I see. Yeah. That I didn't see. start till I was uh, probably a senior in high school. Okay. And so then at one point, I was, I was doing some research on Nick, and I Googled Nick, um, and, you know, what came up was interesting. It was a 1997 article in The Spokesman uh, where he was interviewed about his massive beer can collection. So tell us a little bit about how many cans you had and also the, the, the price value at that time uh, for all of that. Um, well, when I... Uh the, the, finally, when I got to the, the maximum amount that I really had, I think I had about 6,000 different ones. Um, when we were living in Illinois, uh, they were literally on every wall in my house uh, at that time. So uh, when we moved out here, kind of uh, started paring it down a little bit. I ran into the individual from the spokesman. His first name was Dave. I cannot recall his last name. He used to write kind of quirky articles about weird things uh, as a feature. Uh, was it Basaraba? Uh, no? no, I don't think so. I don't think <laughs> I'm so. I'm not quirky. Those are uh, those are serious articles. Oh, this is, that's right. I forgot. So I ran into him, and well, we got to talking about just beer stuff in general. He said, "Hey, I'd like to do a story on you." And I said, "Well, sure. Yeah, come on over to the house." And uh, he came over, and we were looking through, uh, looking at the cans. I was kind of explaining the hobby to him uh, and all of that stuff. So yeah, yeah, it was. That's good. And so now, in the article, it talked about. The places you went to find beer cans, which are not the most, uh, like I'm thinking of the outhouse thing. So, like, tell us a little bit about where you go to find old beer cans and why. Right. It was, uh, when I grew growing up in Michigan, it's, um, it was basically a lot of surface dumps and things like that. People just throw their garbage out in the woods or whatever. Um, moving out here to the west, uh, you all are from, if you're all from here, uh, you know you can dig a hole about 10 foot deep in about five minutes, uh, whereas it would take a backhoe and five or six guys to do that in the Midwest. Uh, so here uh, out in the campgrounds, the Forest Service campgrounds, uh, back in the early, up till about 62, uh, there'd be a sign in every tree saying, bury your garbage. Uh, so people, uh, big campgrounds, the Forest Service workers would go in and literally dig a 10-foot deep pit, and that was where everyone threw their garbage. And once it got f- almost clo- uh, full, they'd close it up and dig another hole, and people would throw their garbage there. Uh, so when I moved out here, I uh, was introduced some uh, some of the guys over in the Seattle side, and they said, hey, yeah, no, we use metal detectors. We'll go out. Um, they would f- find old, like, 1930s Forest Service maps that would show where the campgrounds are. Well, every once in a while, these campgrounds, they get wore out, basically. So they would close the campground, move it a mile down the highway or down the road, and that other one would sit, and there it would sit. Well, you find the old, like, 19, mid-1930s maps, find out where the campground is, and you just go back in there with metal detectors and find where the pits are and the garbage and all of that. Uh, the soil here is really, really good as far as preservation. So we're digging up beer cans that are, like, 70 years old that look like, I mean, you could still smell the beer in the can. Uh, those those are the good ones. You're lucky to find that. A lot of times, could you uh, still taste it though? Literally, yes. Literally, could still taste. <laughs> Did it. you ever get a buzz on like a seven year old? Yeah. No, but I uh, knew a guy that. A long story short, knew a guy that would go dig, and he found an old jar of Vienna sausages. This was like from the '50s, and he ate them. Wow. And no harm, no foul. He was still he alive. Was fine. Still alive. So we have hope. We have hope. Yep, Twinkies and Vienna sausage. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
Um, so then uh, in, in 1993, you moved to Spokane. And when you do, because uh, you, you served in the Air Force. Right. Yeah, right? I was um, went from uh, Florida and then I got uh, stationed in Illinois. I was a uh, tech school instructor there. Uh, and then he closed the base, and they came down one day with a, with a list said, here, pick a base to go to. I said, oh, okay. I said, oh, Fairchild. I've never been out west before, so we would decided we were going to come out here. Uh, we drove out here. We got as far as the bridge, the big bridge, before you get into Coeur d'Alene. And I looked at my wife. I said, we're retiring here. And so we moved out here and bought a house and all of that. And, um, and that was 93. That was, yeah, that was in uh, 1993 when we first moved out here. And then that would be the start. So then you move here and you start to gain an affinity for a Spokane beer culture. And so collecting beer paraphernalia or collectibles is called Bruriana, Correct. right? Yeah. Um, and so then you become kind of the leading source of finding Spokane Bruriana, right? Well, I was really, the, there, there are a lot of closet collectors in Spokane, but there really aren't. A lot, like there's no club here or anything like that. So it was just a matter of, and I, when I first uh, moved out here, um, over down where the Washington State, the bookstore is, the Shoddy Tower building, uh, at one time that was a carpet and an antique store. And when we first moved out here, I uh, just walked in there and there was a gold, I did some little research about the breweries here in Spokane before I moved out here. So I kind of had an idea. So went in there kind of looking around, looking at stuff, and there was a golden age neon sitting on the counter. And I'm like, holy cow. So I uh, went up there, and it had a sold sign on I'm like, ah, dang. So uh, went up there, and I asked the lady, I said, hey, do you mind if I take a picture of that? It's really, really cool, blah, blah, blah. So I'm taking a picture, and I'm chatting up the gal. And uh, the owner comes by. He says, oh, you like that? I says, oh, yeah, that's really cool. He says, well, you want it? And I said, well, it's already sold. He says, it's been on layaway for six months. If you want it, just pay for it. And I'm like, okay. So I ended, uh, ended up buying that one, and that was really the start of uh, picking up just Spokane stuff. And I started concentrating on that, uh, kind of got out of beer cans, except for the Spokane stuff, sold a lot of that to buy the uh, Spokane uh, brewery on it. And so then, uh, for people who don't know, Golden Age is a, that was, uh, when did they start? They were in the Shoddy Tower. Right, they right? were in that building. They uh, took over, Shoddy closed it in, uh, when Prohibition started here in 1916. Um, and then in 1933, a group of investors uh, purchased the building and uh, renovated the inside of it. Uh, if you're interested, if you're ever at the brewery, I have all the blueprints uh, from the uh, architect uh, when they did the renovation on it. Right. Yeah. Your, your collection was extensive, but if you ever come to Cheney and you go to Inland Elworks, he has decorated the entire brewery with, um, you know, different pictures, uh, paraphernalia, um, bottles and, and cases and, and different um, signs and so on. And, and what's really neat, too, are some of the linkages to, like, Tico, a little town out of here used to have a brewery, right? And you have some information on that or old malting facilities. And yeah, so there on. was a, it's actually just an invoice for beer they sold. I got a, found, went in an antique store and, and dug through this book and it had a whole bunch of invoices from uh, the Percord Hotel here in Spokane. And it had uh, invoices for shoddy beer and Tico beer and inland brewing and malting and things like that. So yeah, yeah just had to, so just bought that stuff. Yeah. What are people looking for when they're collecting Bruyana. You know, really, it kind of based on what their interest is. I know just as a general collector, uh, the older it is, the better it is, because the harder it is, because there isn't that many of them. So uh, really, any of your pre-prohibition stuff uh, is pretty uh, is pretty tough to get, especially a lot of the advertising that they did was, I mean, looking at it, you would look at it and go, oh, God, you'd never throw that away. But it was really made to be the calendars, even though it was a lithographed calendar, at the end of the year, you just rolled it up and threw it away. Right. Uh, so, but then they also did some of the advertising is really, really super uh, thin-walled etched glasses that had the brewery's advertising on it, and they would give those away, like in the holidays and things like that. So think about it, 100 years later, this super, I mean, just you just click the top on it, you'll crack it. So wow. things like that, how they ended up lasting. I knew they produced a lot of them, but... So those become would, very collectible, they, just from yep. the fragility of them. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. What was the brewery in Portland before Weinhardt's? Like, my dad has a couple Weinhardt's glasses, exactly like you described. Super thin, you wouldn't even want to, like, look at it wrong, it'll crack. And then there was a brewery before it. Was it Schlitz? Or well, was it Blatt's? Blatt's. Blatt's Weinhardt. Because it used to be Blatt's Weinhardt then. It was no, Blatt's. Blitz. Blitz beer. And yeah. then it was Blitz Weinhardt. It wasn't, yeah, it, Blitz it wasn't was Blatt's. a separate brewery. Arnold yeah, Blitz. Blitz. Was, yes. Was it Blitz? It was Blitz. Yeah, yeah so he has I was close. Blitz. I was I off by one bow. Yeah. The wordle for the day, you know. I, dang it. It's okay. Blatt's was so in close. Milwaukee. Oh, and they had those great commercials, Blitz or Blatt's. 
Remember on the TV? I don't. No, they didn't have TV. Oh. So. <laughs> um, so then how did you start getting into homebrewing? So you're this big collector, obviously have this interest in beer, this affinity for it. How does the homebrewing come into play? Yeah, and at that time, um, probably I was living in Illinois at the time, um, and I was at one of our beer collectible shows and had a table out with my junk on it, and uh, this guy just had a table next to me, and we got to talking and uh, chatting, and he goes, hey, you want a beer? I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. He opens a cooler and hands me this beer bottle with no label on it, and I'm like, what's this? He says, oh, I made that. I'm like, what do you mean you made that? He says, I homebrew. So what's homebrewing? He says, yeah, he says, I made the beer. I says, nobody make, you don't make beer. Budweiser makes beer. And you told him, you drink yours first. So, (laughs) no, I, I, uh... Uh, opened it up and drank it, and that was it. The Three best days beer. later, you woke up and the best beer I had ever had. Oh! And uh, turns out he said, "Well, hey, if you like that, I can teach you how to do that." And I said, "Yeah, hey, that'd be great." And it ended up living about five miles from me uh, in a little town that I lived in. So I went over to his house one day, and uh, he uh, showed me how to homebrew, and I started homebrewing. That was in 1988. 1988. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, and you were living where at the time? Uh, that was in Illinois. So Thomasboro, Illinois, Illinois. Little town. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, you continue homebrewing. You moved to Spokane. Uh, from yeah, from Illinois when they closed. That was in '93. I moved out here. Okay. Yep. And then you start uh, entering some competitions, right? You did some because uh, if you go into your brewery, you have some ribbons and different things for. Uh, and w- tell us a little bit about your competitions. And, uh, yeah, uh, I've entered um, when I was living in. Um, after Illinois, um, or after I moved out here, I got sent to Texas, and I lived in Texas for a long time. Uh, entered some competitions down there. Um, uh, did okay at those, and then when we moved back out here, uh, started entering the ones at the state fair, and I did that for every year for probably 10 years, uh, and entered, uh, entered different beers there. Did, uh, did okay. Uh, a lot of second place, so first loser. But, uh, yeah. yeah, no, it gave me a lot of experience because I got a lot of great feedback from the, uh, the guys that were the judges at the time. So it kind of really helped me kind of sharpen my skills as far right. as brewing goes. Yeah. And then you reach a point where you say, not too long ago in life, I think I'm going to open a brewery. And then you go to your daughter and say, hey, you want to go into business. So tell us a, bit, a little bit about how Inland and Works comes into existence. Yeah, what, really any home brewer, they're always going to go, wow, man, it'd be great to own a brewery until you actually own one and find out how much work it is. Yes. And... So, uh, yeah, no, um, I always thought, hey, that'd be great, something great to do. Uh, and then probably five, six years, well, God, probably seven, eight years ago, um, I just started, I had read a book about just a Franken-brew brewing system where it's just cobbled together stuff. It's big home brewing, basically. So I started collecting pieces of equipment as I was getting it and uh, lined my driveway in my backyard and all of this other stuff with uh, the, these items. Uh, so I thought about, we were going to, okay, let's do this. And it's like, okay, when are we going to do this, et cetera? Uh, my youngest daughter uh, was going to college at Eastern, uh, decided she wanted to get pursue a business degree. Uh, so she did that. I said, hey, do you want to start a business? I said, let's use your degree and we'll start a business. So uh, in 90 or uh, 2018, we started, uh, got serious about it, started looking around for a place, uh, looked in Spokane for prob- probably a year and at that time, uh, a retail space uh, was about 98% full in Spokane, and the places that were available were either cut up into 50 different little offices, uh, or they just wanted just an insane amount of money for stuff. Uh, so for my work one day, I was driving uh, through Cheney, and I knew um, there was a brewery there at one time, and drove by the building, and uh, there was a, a lease sign in the window. I said, hey, okay. So checked it out, looked at it, uh, contacted the owner. Uh, the price was really, really good, um, and it had already been kind of, a, kind of a brewery before, so I knew it would work. And uh, so, yeah, went in there um, uh, 2019 and started renovating. The inside of the building was absolutely trash. The owner owns a collision shop, so there's a bunch of junk cars in there, and uh, when the other brewery was there, he just kind of... There was stuff on the walls, and you take something off a wall, there'd be a hole there. There's no drywall, so I was having to patch that, and then uh, running, you know, putting in plumbing and sinks and stuff like that, right. and all of that. So, and I did probably 95% of that myself. So, right. so Nick, before you signed a lease to have a brewery in Cheney, had you met anyone from Cheney yet? <laughs> I, I had actually gone to school, when I was stationed out here uh, in the 90s, I'd actually gone to school there, so I kind of knew sort of kind of what, what was going on, but... Yeah. yeah. Okay, and you still did it. But I, and I still did still it. Did I it. still did it. Yeah. You knew that Chris Sindrick lived there, <laughs> yeah. and you still 
I'm, I'm only a mile away from the brewery. And he wow. still did it. I know. Crazy, right? Crazy. All the best people that work at Eastern live in some other city other than Cheney. So, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Like, all, only the dumbasses that work at Eastern actually choose to live there. Though I do believe when, uh, before I even I think I'd he took the opened, words right out of Tim's mouth. Yeah, I'm just saying what he's looking at me thinking. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Though I do believe before I even opened, there was a, a guy with his friends that come over banging on my door wanting to know when the heck we were going to open. That would have been me. Yeah, that would have been you. So I, <laughs> You remember that? I do remember yeah. that. Was he, on a, was he on a, a beach cruiser with fenders covered in bottle caps? Because then it was Chris. It's been there. It's been there. My, the, you know, the Nick, Nick if, if you had moved closer to an elementary school, he would not be allowed to go there. Yeah, so. this is true. This is true. I wouldn't. This is, this is very true. Wow. Okay. And that's only because Tim usually comes drinking with me, and he has a lot of uh, restraining orders against him, and he has no pants on. Um, so, well, I'm thrilled that you opened in Cheney, that you made that choice, um, and that you do have a pretty unique brew house. You've talked a little bit about it. So can you go into a little bit more detail on, because you, you said you, you, you just need stainless steel containers a lot of the times to make things. So go, go a little bit more detail on what your brew system looks like. Well, it's really anything that, um, stainless steel is great because it's very easy to clean, things like that. Um, basically, my uh, fermenters and my mash tun, are three uh, uh, former dairy tanks. Uh, so they're, one of them, the, the main fermenter, it actually has a uh, capability of being chilled because there's a jacket in it. So I got a little uh, glycol chiller attached to that so we can at least have some uh, temperature control on it. Uh, the main mash tun is, again, just a, just a dairy tank. Nothing, nothing fancy about it. I did have the brew kettle uh, fabricated by a guy that uh, ran a distillery up in uh, Colville. Uh, so ended up getting that. So that's the only real store-bought. And my one uh, three-barrel bright tank is a store-bought one. The rest of the stuff is I have a six-barrel one, but it's a basically a tote tank that they uh, shipped uh, yogurt in. Nice. But it's stainless. It works. Hell holds pressure, so it works good. And then what are you brewing? Well, if somebody goes on uh, you know, to your uh, brewery and they're ordering, what are, you, what are they going to find on tap right now? Uh, right now we've got um, just blew a couple of them. Um, redoing the lemonade. We have a hard lemonade. We have a lot of folks that want... Got anything gluten free? So we did a hard lemonade. Uh, that's pretty simple to do. That we sell actually a lot, a lot is that of that. Nick's Nick's hard lemonade. It is Nick's hard lemonade. Huh. <laughs> uh, that one, and then uh, we're going to be doing a um, a beer here, a uh, jalapeno beer here, pretty soon. Um, and then had my first bad batch of beer uh, and twenty or thirty nine batches. So I fortunate enough i think my yeast got stressed really bad when i did the starter so it just it took forever uh, was that the collab you did with mountain lake yeah. i think that's not going to work out yeah that happened first bad batch yeah. of beer in 39 yeah, batches you know. <laughs> sometimes you win and sometimes you get in business with mountain lakes yeah and then the uh, rest <laughs> of the stuff it's just kind of uh craigslist i mean craigslist and uh i uh, when I was in the Air Force, I was an aircraft mechanic, so I'm kind of handy with some tools. Uh, my keg washer actually built that. Um, and then um, the kegs we bought when Orelson uh, went to the half-barrel uh, half kegs, we bought all, uh, like, 78 of their 50 liters. Right. And then bought some new, ooh, some fancy new uh, six bar or sixth-barrel uh, kegs. And then oh, you yeah. have a Golden Age beer on, which is built on a recipe, right? Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, um, the... Again, I collect a bunch of beer junk. I was on uh, eBay one day, and a guy uh, from the local area here said, oh, yeah, I got all this junk. It has beer stuff in it, da-da-da, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just paperwork. So I just got it for next to nothing. He sends it to me, uh, and it ends up being the, uh, the brewmaster, uh, Hans Lutz, uh, from Golden Age uh, Brewery from when it opened in 33 uh, until uh, and he retired in 47. Uh, it was just basically a bunch of just handwritten notes and recipes for Golden Age beers, their ales, things like that, and it's all, uh, yeah, just handwritten stuff out. Uh, half of it's in German, so it's I have to get some of that uh, some of that translated. But uh, yeah, so the Golden Age ale recipe, pretty simple to follow on the uh, uh, on the notes that he had. So we just went ahead and had to guess at some of the stuff, but 
Um, it uh, worked out pretty good. I, yeah. It's my daughter likes that. Yeah. She drinks that's, a lot. That's a good beer. Um, so you recently held the homebrew competition. Right. Um, uh, what's in store for Inland Ale Works? What should people be looking for over the next number of months? Yeah, including prob- that jalapeno ale. Yeah, right? the jalapeno one. We're gonna do uh, probably brew that on the twenty eighth. So we'll have that one uh, in a couple weeks after that. And so that, that was the be, winner of the homebrew competition? That was the winner, yeah. That yeah. was the winner of the homebrew competition. Uh, we had um, actually several of the beers. One guy entered like 10 beers. But uh, a lot of them were really, really good. Yeah. It was kind of hard to hard to choose. But uh, that one, I'm not a big jalapeno guy, but smelled like it, tasted like it, no heat. It was it was awesome. Really, nice. really good stuff. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to brewing that with, uh, with a uh, rookie homebrewer and let him get his feet wet and show him how uh, how much fun it is to operate a uh, operate a brewery. That's awesome. <laughs> well, Nick, it has been a true pleasure talking with you and learning your story and the exciting things happening at Inland Networks. Thank you so much for joining us on Not My Beer. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, we're not taking a break now because we can't have St. Patrick's Day show without limericks. So, my friends, it's now time for a game where you have to listen for the rhyme. Um, it's called Beer Limericks, and we've asked an audience member to step up to the challenge. Hello, and welcome. Tell us your name and a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Otto, and uh, something about me, I've uh, been living in seven different states in the last ten years. Ten years, seven, and you are military? No. No. That would be my guess. Yeah. So how does that happen, Otto? How, what makes you move around so much? Chasing lots of jobs. Just trying to find, find fun places to go. And okay. So where have you been? Like, tell us a little bit about how did you land in Spokane and where did you come from prior to here? I uh, was living up and down the East Coast, uh, just working in different jobs and uh, trucked my way across into the, the Midwest towards Colorado, then worked my way up to up to uh, Eastern, up here, up to Eastern Washington. Awesome. Well, welcome to Eastern Washington. Glad to have you. Here's what we're going to do at this point in the show. Dave is going to read three beer-related limericks with the last word or phrase missing from each. If you can fill in that last word or phrase correctly in two of the limericks, you will be a winner. Free beer and a pint glass. Are you ready to play? I am. All right, so... Otto, you're, uh, in recognition of St. Patrick's Day, your limericks tonight are all classic Irish limericks. So classic Irish limericks. Here is your first limerick. There once was a girl from Nantucket. No. <laughs> it was a guy. Oh. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. There was an old man with a beard who said, It is just as I feared. Two owls and a hen, four larks and a wren have all built their nests in my... Beard. Beard. Hey! So apparently when limericks, I looked up a lot of old limericks and they just rhyme the first, last word of the first with the last word of the last sentence, so... That, yeah. Did you write that limerick? Chris? I did not. That is a cla- That was actually written by, um, what's his name, Edward Lear, wow. the famous Irish poet. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Or so that's English, weird. I think he's an English poet that wrote they use, a lot of them. They, they use the same word. They use twice? the same word. I looked up all of these old limericks and yeah. it was beard, beard, and, you know, go and go or whatever it is, yeah. you know? But I'm just giving you a hint, Otto, on the next two, it is not that. That's so, not that. Right. So we straight Good. away. <laughs> so Good anyway, to know. Right. just letting you know that don't follow that pattern. So, <laughs> yeah. Otto, here's your second limerick. He just listens to the first line. He's like, <laughs> that's it. There once was a young man from Esser whose knowledge grew lesser and lesser. It at last grew so small, he knew nothing at all. So now he's a college professor. Oh! Well, there we go. Yes, that's, a, that's actually a classic limerick that I wrote for my, uh, my sixth run with the Flying Irish. When I stood on the bar at O'Doherty's, I gave that limerick. I, and, and that was before I ever met Tim Hilton to prove the case that it is I, true. I am, I am offended by this. Yeah, why? Otto wouldn't be. I mean, what's your job? Um, maybe that. <laughs> You're, what do you do? Uh, I'm a professor at Eastern Washington. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. You got to be a real dumbass to have that job. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of dumbasses on stage. Right apparently, right here. Only three. <laughs> three of us. Here, all right, Otto, here's your third limerick. There once was an old drunkard of Devon who died and ascended to heaven. But he cried, This is Hades. There are no naughty ladies. 
And the pubs are all shut by... 11. There you go. <laughs> Way to go. Not a place to be. No naughty ladies and the pubs closed too early. Dave, how did Otto do on our quiz? Three for three. We've got a winner. All right. Otto, thank you so much for playing. That wraps up the first part of our show. We'll now take a break and be back in a few with Nick, Tim, and Dave and an audience contestant for a little game we call Bluff the Drinker. Welcome back to the Brew House stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington. This is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer live audience show and podcast. I'm Dave Basarava, and here's your host, Chris Sindrick. Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you, everybody. Right now, it's time for the Wheat Wheat Show game called Bluff the Drinker. Uh, this is the game where we ask an audience member to tell us truth from fiction. Well, welcome to the show. Tell us your name and a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Carrie Myers. Um, my wife and I just recently moved to the area this last year. I work in the ER over here, and I'm really happy to be in this kind of facility versus the ER tonight. On a nice. Day like tonight. Yes, this is not a good night for ER, right? No, St. Patrick's no well, it's Day. a busy night. Yeah. Busy night. And then um, what brought you to, where'd you come from, and how did you come to Spokane? We are originally from, I'm originally from Colorado, um, and we kind of both are originally from Colorado, and we found our way out here, just good people and good place to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome again, new people coming in, love to have you here. Welcome to the show. Um, it's, uh, you are about to play a game where you must tell truth from fiction. Your topic, as always on this show, is beer. However, specifically, our panelists are each going to tell you a beer story related to Spokane beer history. Imagine that. Pick the one who's telling the truth, and you'll win a prize, which is free beer and a pint glass. Okay, Carrie, are you ready to play? I feel like I've, my whole life has been building up to this moment. There you go. <laughs> That's good. First off, let's hear from Tim Hilton. Okay. You all know Lewis and Clark. Some of you may know that Meriwether Lewis was a heavy drinker. In fact, the duo's initial meeting was the product of one of Lewis's benders while serving in the Army. One night in 1795, Lewis got so drunk on homemade rum that he challenged a fellow lieutenant to a duel. Rather than accept the duel, the lieutenant reported Lewis to the commanding officer. General Anthony Wayne. To avoid having to press charges in the paperwork of a court-martial, Wayne moved Lewis to another company, the Chosen Rifle Company, under the command of none other than William Clark. Thus, the two met and would later become one of the most important duos in American history. When the Corps of Discovery, as the Lewis and Clark expedition was known, set out in May of 1804, they brought well over 150 gallons of whiskey and several barrels of ale with them. Apparently, the crew shared Lewis's love of booze. While Lewis uh, had natural leadership skills and had become a skilled navigator, Clark and the crew knew to keep their distance when Lewis was sufficiently plastered. The unwritten rule was that when Lewis was drunk, Clark was the boss. Only no one told Lewis. Um, everyone just sort of ignored, ignored him until he was sober. As the expedition crossed into what is now known as Washington State at the convergence of the Snake and Clearwater Rivers in Hell's Canyon, Lewis was in rare form. He had consumed nearly half a gallon of whiskey that day and insisted um, that the crew head north. By land or river, no matter, I want to see the land of the Spokane. They are a friendly people, and there is a mighty river there that can take us all the way to the Pacific, he insisted. Clark and a few other members of the expedition were doubtful and decided this was one of those times to ignore Lewis. Clark decided a good plan was to take away Lewis's whiskey so he wouldn't get sick and give him a good strong ale, which Clark had learned caused Lewis to sleep. It worked. Within an hour, Lewis was passed out. When Lewis awoke that, later that night, the Corps of Discovery had made camp somewhere near what is now the Tri-Cities. They'd met up with a local native tribe, the Yakima, and camped in their village. Through their interpreter, interpreter Sacagawea, they had told the tribal members of Lewis's bender and their practice of ignoring him when he was drunk. The Yakima agreed to play along. 
When Lewis awoke, Clark and the rest of the expedition told Lewis that they were camped in the land of the Spokane along the Spokane River. The Yakima chief, Kamiakin, uh, introduced himself to Lewis as chief of the Spokane tribe. Lewis was delighted. Throughout the rest of the trip to the Pacific and the long ride down the Columbia, Lewis insisted they were on the Spokane River. Whenever Clark and the rest of the crew got annoyed with Lewis, they knew what to do. Whiskey, heavy ale, and then ignore him until he sleeps it off. That strategy had lasted until they reached the Long Beach Peninsula and what is now known as Cape Disappointment, named for Lewis's reaction when he learned he had consumed the last of his whiskey and ale. Or perhaps for Clark and the crew's disappointment that their strategy for managing Lewis had run its course. Luckily, they found the Pacific soon after. Their next venture, find more booze. All right. Lewis Dreams of Spokane from Tim Hilton is your first choice. So now we are going to hear from Nick Johnson. In 1902, John G.F. Hibner began construction of the new Hibner Brewing and Malting Company. By 1904, he was able to move production from the Vinegar Flats Brewery to the new modern plant on 2nd Street between Cedar and Walnut. At that time, he had hired a new bookkeeper named Harry Lowell Crosby, who had recently arrived from Tacoma with his young family. Crosby continued to work as bookkeeper even after Prohibition was instituted in 1916. Occasionally, Harry would bring in his young son, also named Harry, to the brewery to play among the brewery tanks and get underfoot of the brewmaster. With the advent of Prohibition, the brewery converted to making a variety of products under the Spitz Food banner. This included things like a variety of crushed fruit products, uh, butter, apple cider vinegar, and ketchup. It was a ketchup that the brewmaster would often complain to the young Crosby about, often cursing in German. As young Crosby grew older, he became attracted to music and the theater. While attending Gonzaga Prep, Harry took a summer job as a property boy at the Auditorium Theater. Uh, his interest eventually led, eventually led uh, to him concentrating on music and singing. After high school, Harry attended Gonzaga University. During this time, he joined a local small-time band with brothers Al and Miles Rinker, uh, whose older sister was well-known jazz singer Mildred Bailey. They disbanded in 1925, and in October, Crosby and Al Rinker decided to seek fame in California. They traveled to Los Angeles, where Bailey introduced them to her show business contacts. Uh, the Falcon and Mario Time Agency hired them for uh, the Boulevard Theater in Los Angeles. In 1931, Crosby made his uh, nationwide solo radio debut on a weekly uh, radio show. The weekly broadcast made him a hit. Before the end of the year, he signed with both Brunswick Records and CBS Radio. Even before this time, Harry had acquired an odd nickname. When asked how he got it, he stated that was, in fact, a neighbor around 1910 who had named him Bingo from Bingville after a comic feature in the local paper called the Bingville Bugle. Uh, in time, uh, Bingo got shortened to Bing. You may know Harry Crosby as star of stage and screen, Bing Crosby. So, Bing Goes the Brewery from Nick is your second choice, and now your third story comes from Dave Basaraba. Does everyone have a full beer? This is a long one. <laughs> Good. As you probably know, Father's Day as we know it in the United States was all started right here in Spokane, Washington, just across the river at the YWCA by the daughter of a Civil War veteran, Sonora Smart Dodd. But did you know another widely celebrated national tradition also has its root in the Lilac City? That's right, green beer got its start right here. You either love it or you hate it, but this St. Patrick's Day tradition all started because of a blessing gone wrong at a local brewery here in Spokane, Washington. Jacob Betts had opened the Star Brewing Company in 1895 in Walla Walla, Washington. By 1904, Betts' pale lager was so widely known that it caught the attention of a pair of wealthy saloon keepers in Spokane. Michael Murphy and John Walsh put together a syndicate to buy the company and planned to move the operation to the site of what is now famously the old Shoddy Brewing Company in the University District, right here on the banks of the Spokane River. Murphy and Walsh, both of Irish heritage, decided they would open their new venture with a giant St. Patrick's Day event the following year in 1905. The group had hired new, brothers, new brewers, Walsh's son Michael, as well as a more experienced brewer, Seamus Campbell, who had recently immigrated with his family from Scotland and would take over as head brewer from Betts. Upon learning that the brewery grand opening was to happen with a party on St. Patrick's Day, a feast day meant to celebrate the patron saint of Ireland, the Scottish Campbell thought he'd pay a little tribute to his heritage and told the team they would need to brew the beer a bit early. 
On November 30th, to make sure the beer had plenty of time to age and clarify, he told them. The grand opening was more than 12 weeks away, and November 30th, unbeknownst to Murphy and Walsh, was of course the feast day of St. Andrew, patron saint of Scotland. The beer didn't need that much time to lager, of course, but it was, quote, good luck to lager the first batch a bit longer, Seamus said. Campbell and Walsh brewed the first batch of the Spokane Betts lager and filled six vats full of the brilliant golden wort. After everyone had gone home for the night, Seamus unfurled six Scottish flags he had procured the week before, one for each of the giant open fermentation tanks. And as he draped each vat with the white cross on blue, lit a candle, and recited a simple prayer he prepared for the beginning of this new brewing venture. To our patron St. Andrew, I solemnly pray to you, Slanjavar to our brothers near and far, and in your great name, bless this brew. Twelve weeks later, when they went to fill the kegs, the golden beer was bright green. Apparently, the blue dye from the Scottish flags had soaked into the wort when the flags drooped. Luckily, Walsh and Murphy, the owners, thought it was a great miracle, and ever since that day, to celebrate the patron saint of Ireland, and really because of a prayer made to the patron saint of Scotland, we enjoy a glass of green beer on St. Patrick's Day. All right, so... That, that one has to be true, because yellow and blue make... Green. Green, yeah. yeah. So, uh, blessing gone wrong from Dave is your third choice. Dave, I, was, I thank you for bringing back the accents, too. We that tried. Was a, that was a thing we always I tried. Did. Was that close to Scottish? Yeah, it was, that was pretty good. I don't know. I thought it was all right. So, uh, here are your choices, Carrie. You've got Lewis Dreams of Spokane. That was from Tim Hilton. You've got Bingo's The Brewery, and that was from Nick Johnson. And you've got Blessing Gone Wrong from Dave Basaraba. Remember, you're looking for the true story. Which story do you choose? Which one of us do you think would, yeah, would I, lie? Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, Dave's story is pretty believable, except for I think he just invented it so he could show off the accent. <laughs> I feel like that's why that story exists. And I really want... I am not that transparent. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, stop it, Lassie. Ah. <laughs> um, and while I really want the discovery of this side of the country to be related to someone that's kind of drunk and making their way over here, I feel like the true story is probably number two. That's my final answer. All right, congratulations, Carrie. You got it right. You've won our prize, free beer and a pint glass. Thank you for playing. That wraps up this part of the show. We'll now take a break and be back in a few with Nick, Tim, and Dave and a game we call Brewers on Tap. Welcome back to the Brew House stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington. This is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer live audience show and podcast. I'm Dave Basaraba, and once again, here is your host, Chris Sindrick. Well, thank you, Dave. And now for a game we call Brewers on Tap throughout the night. Our audience members have had the chance to write down a question for one, a few, or all of our panelists. We've chosen a smackerel of them to ask our panel to tap into some of that brewer and owner knowledge. Let's get started, shall we? So here's a question. This is for the panel. Uh, explain your brewery in one sentence. One oh, sentence. I thought you were going to say one word. No, I was, no, like, one, I was already yeah, one tiny. sentence. Um, one phrase I'd say, better than yours. <laughs> Confidence, I like it. Wow, better than you. That could Tim's be a, actually that could be a had motto. A, better yeah. our beer, yeah. Mountain our Lakes. beer is better than yours. Yeah. And you could. How do you spell Neener Neener? Is there a is there a beer called Nanny Nanny Boo Boo? <laughs> and then you could have another one called like Stick Your Head in Doo Doo, and you could just have a whole series. Yeah. Right. Maybe. I'll edit it out. Tim's giving me that look. Here's a comment. Here's a comment. Do we have to have a host for this show? <laughs> no. Next week, next month, next it's you. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of town. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I don't know, a phrase for ours? Are um, you coming back? What's that? Are you coming back? No. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I, I've just been given it from our producer that our phrase is beer for every taste. That's right. Beer for every yeah. taste. Yeah. 
All right. Let's Don't have, leave without a taste of every beer because we've got a beer for every taste. There you go. Oh, wow. That's actually pretty good. How about taking a, it on the road? A beer yeah. for all seasons. Beer for, beer for all seasons? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, a beer, or you could say a beer for all saisons. Yes. <laughs> Here's a beer to drink instead of a saison. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, what, you're booing. You're not a saison fan either, eh? Nope. Yeah, look at this. Three against not, one. Not much. Okay. It's, what about, it's Chris's favorite beer, Nick. The saison. He'll come in. Give me saison. No, give me saison. Whenever we go to another brewery together, you know, we order something like a Kolsch or a Pale or, you know, something normal. Yeah. I'm I don't like, drink. I don't drink any of those. Chris is like, do you, do you have a large fluted glass and a saison, perhaps? Right, right. He came in the first time. He's like, do you have a saison? I'm like, no. You know where you should go, though? And he goes, where? I go, any fucking place but here. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Pretty much all went. And I keep coming back <laughs> just for the abuse. What about Nick? What do you, you got? A, a you guys have a good tagline on your logo. Yeah, what is that? Well, don't touch that. That's hot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. What is, that, what is your? A, you have a. There's. Ba- uh, it's uh, hops by the bale in every ale. Okay, there you go. Yeah. But but you you talked and you you wanted to go. You love IPAs. And if you could just brew IPAs, if I, you would. If I could do 12 IPAs, that, that's what I would do. And uh, right. Emily says, uh, no. She we're not doing no. 12. We're not doing, we'll do three, maybe. It's but maybe good, you could. Maybe you could just do that. I could just, yeah. She, don't know what I mean, she doesn't know what I'm making back there. I can call it yeah, anything. Yeah, you could just tell her. She Does she drink? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, this it, is a hoppy red, and this is a hoppy coal. Right. Is, yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah. Hoppy. Hop, this hoppy, is a hoppy stout. Hoppy saison. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. All of that. <laughs> so another tagline, or would you have another uh, way? No, to just, you know, just those two. Just stick with that. Okay. Don't touch Don't that. Touch it's hot. hot. All right, here's a question for you. This is for the panel. Brewery recommendations in Seattle. If you're going to Seattle, do you have uh, favorite breweries that you would, you would go to and, uh, and visit? Uh, probably uh, Half Lion in Auburn. Oh, I don't know that. What it, where? Uh, it's an Auburn. Okay, and and what are they? What's what's good uh, about they them? They just uh, <laughs> they make a lot of really 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 good IPAs. Yeah, nice. Uh, owners are really great, um, and just very friendly atmosphere. It's a it's a great it's a great brewery. Cool. Anyone else? I'd go to Hilliards. Uh, they're known for their lagers, and I think they're pretty delicious. And lagers are becoming so hot right now. Cool. Uh, any, so go to a dress in your best hipster and go to Hilliards and have some Hilliards. Go, yeah. go there. What about you? Got anything? Nope. Tim? No. <laughs> Just stay in Spokane. <laughs> anyway, screw that place. Screw that place. Just drink in Spokane. Gosh darn it! Don't leave. You don't need Tim to leave. Tim submitted an article to the spokesman that says all the breweries in Seattle are closed. Just come drink in Spokane. Here's a question. Um, it's really light, and I don't have my. I should put my glasses on. What's the most unique piece of Spokane beer history you have ever owned? Uh, so I would assume this is for you. Well, now he is a piece of Spokane beer history. Oh! Uh, probably the, and I, this is when uh, we decided we were going to open the brewery. I, I had a, not to be modest, they had a huge, extensive collection of Spokane advertising. I owned almost every tray that they had ever put out. Uh, tin signs glassed and sold probably 90% of it to fund our brewery when we started. Um, and, but some of the stuff I did cap, I uh, did keep, um, kept a lot of the post prohibition stuff, ended up selling a lot of that again, because it's starting a brewery is really expensive. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Uh, but, uh, anyways, there's uh, one piece that I did keep. I'll probably be buried with that. Uh, it is a golden age piece, uh, right after prohibition, and it is a gal in short shorts uh, in a b- kind of a biker outfit uh, sitting on a keg. And it just says Golden Age beer. And it says uh, fully aged, no headaches. Oh. That is probably the coolest piece. And that is I, your... Yeah, that is probably the coolest piece. I've, I still, and I still, fortunately, still own that one. And, that's, so, yeah. and, what, and what is it? It's like a big tin It's No, it's a, actually just a, it's a paper sign. Oh, okay. And funny. So anyway, I'll, quick story. Uh, anyways, when I first moved out here, I put an ad in the uh, the thrifty nickel paper, 
and looking for beer stuff. And I uh, got a, an old guy called me and said, hey, I got this sign. So I went over to his house, and he had this sign. And he said his brother from Colfax had given it to him when he was a kid. And this dude was probably 90 when I ran into him. And this was in 93. So the dude was, you know, a teenager right. in the 30s. And he said, yeah, his cousin gave him to him, and he had it hanging up. It's kind of, for the 30s, it was very risque. Uh, and he had it hanging up in his room, and he said, yeah, my parents never made me take it down. So, uh, and he rolled it up, put it in a desk drawer, and there it sat for 60 years till I ended up getting it. So, oh. Yeah. And so what, what is that, like, unique collectibles? That, what, would that, what would that, that go for? What would that fetch? I, in a regular auction, uh, thousands. Thousands, yeah, of thousands of dollars. I would say, like tens of thousands. Uh, not tens no, of thousands. Probably, I probably five thousand. I would yeah, think. 5, yeah, five thousand. Where yeah. do you keep it in your house? It's <laughs> <laughs> under lock and key. I have a vault down there with uh, combination locks and uh, uh, big dogs. The combination is one, <laughs> two, two, three, four. You'll, you'll never That's figure it out. That's the same as my luggage. Hey, what's your birthday? <laughs> anyway. Not that either. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, if 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 someone was starting a small hop farm, let's say th five to six acres. If someone were, Chris. If somebody were. Well, this said, I'm reading what they wrote, so, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. If someone was starting a hop, uh, small hop farm, let's say they were doing that, um, <laughs> say five to six acres, uh, what non-proprietary uh, varieties would you recommend for hops? You got any? Anybody? Five to six acres? Five to six acres, which is a decent size. The, the amount, the, a lot of that work is putting in the, the structures mean, to I mean, hold the hops. But. Every brewery is going to use Columbus, Northern Brewer, Cascade. I mean, uh, what else? Citra. Chinook. Especially around you're, here. You're Citra's not going to get Citra. I would, uh, Magnum would be one I would go yeah, for. Yeah, Magnum you'll be able to find. Yeah, so that's a good one. People that don't know, there is a quarantine on hot rhizomes, which are the root cuttings that you have to plant. So you can't, you can only buy rhizomes from Washington, Washington because it's 90, you know, 75% of all hops are... You know, I think, though, if you're going to have so. a small one, a smaller farm, uh, and people want to buy a hop because it's local, I don't think they're going to buy the bittering hop. Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to buy the... Uh, More lower, like mid-range alpha kind yeah, of Yeah, something that's going to be distinct, floral yeah. or citrusy yeah. or something. So, I mean, honestly... I. If it's non-proprietary, I think Cascades would be a pretty good, yeah. pretty good way to go. And I, I grow hops. I have uh, Chinook, which are probably my best. They're very grapefruity, yeah. um, kind of citra. And then I have Willamette that I grow, which mm -hmm. are a lower kind of aroma, which are mm -hmm. kind of a classic. And then I used to have Mount Hood, and those died out. Those actually got aphids really bad. And then I just put in Tahoma last year, which is a, a varietal. I don't know that Tahoma. Tahoma, you're right. It was created at... Um, uh, down at WSU, and so it's a it's a spawn of another hops. I forget what it is, but it, it came out just recently. But it's a Washington-based hops, but it didn't take very well last year. So I, my most successful has been Chinook, and the Willamette do okay. Probably really hot last year for them to, because some of them are not. They're very temperate, so a lot of them are not going to uh, handle the heat very well. Um, that's for yeah. definitely for sure. It's pronounced Willamette, by the way. Willamette E. Willamette E. Willamette. How many breweries have there been in Spokane? Do you have a count? Do you know? Not maybe before craft from a uh, while from when when are we talking? From the very beginning? The beginning. Okay, so oh God. Let's see. Uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, uh, fifteen, sixteen, uh, prohibition seventeen, eighteen. Uh, 19, 20, 21, 22, and then micros. Oh, good Lord. Um, oh, yeah. 22, 23, 24. There's like 64 right now in the Spokane Up until 2010-ish, uh, about 28. And can you name them okay. alphabetically? Um, okay, don't do it alphabetically. Just name them all. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Here's a, a kind of a related. How many breweries are too many for the Spokane area? Because we're getting there to now 9,000 craft breweries in the United States. I would I say know. two. Or too many. Two is too many. Yeah. There should just be two. And what would those two be if there were only two breweries in, in Spokane? Well, we would split it to Mountain, Mountain Lakes and, and Lakes. Mountain Lakes, too. Yeah. 
We would have mountain brewing and lakes brewing. Oh, she would just split it. Yeah. Yeah. I, Tim yeah. would brew all ales, and I would brew all lagers. There you go. And we just, yeah. All right. Yep. All right. We'd make both kinds, country and western. And western. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but like, do you do you think? So is there a, according to the uh, National Brewers Association, you um, they kind of put it at a population density of twelve hundred per brewery. So if you have twelve hundred people for every brewery in your population, then you have enough. What? Yeah. So we have half a million people, so we should be at about three thousand breweries. What? <laughs> Yeah, that's what they said. As long as you have 1,200. 1,200 people serving one. How big is that brewery? I have no idea. It's very small. That's very small. Like yeah. a home brewery. I don't think that's right. Yeah. Because we have per capita, some of, we've been ranked as the number one city per capita. Yeah, because this was all talk when they were asking, it, when, when it, will Portland have too it many? It sounds like more like 12,000 would be most Maybe it was 12,000. 12, so that would be about 50. And right. yeah. yeah, we're a little bit more than that. Right. So the comma and the zero. My bad. Yeah. Um, are we reaching that critical mass? I mean, I'll do you start think, again. Do, can, so we have, can we have more? I mean, I know we have uprises coming in, and there's a couple other brew like uh, common language is about to open. What? What? When does it become too many? And then we see everybody. Are, are we near fifty in Spokane? We're, Maybe in the. Inland I think the Northwest. county we're at it's sixty. Sixty four within like a hundred mile radius is what I count. Yeah, which oh, counts okay. which counts which goes up all the way up into you know yeah. Republic yeah. all the way it's, down. It's but exactly. in the county, because we have half a million people, I, I bet we have fifty in the county. Probably. Yeah. Um how many is too many? I, I, I do think that uh especially as now we have a handful of medium sized breweries, um that some will some will close. Right. Yeah. I think there's gonna be mergers. As we grow, too, I think. So you'll join forces, or there will be buyouts, and people will, yeah, yeah, yeah consolidate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think entry will become harder, too, as property becomes more expensive. Right. Yeah. So That would be a barrier. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, what you get today versus, you know, 10 years ago, even five now is yeah, I mean, significant, right? You'd have to go to Cheney to find something. You would. You would. Don't don't go to Cheney. How many breweries? <laughs> how many breweries can Cheney uh, sustain? Probably like uh, half. Less half of a than less than one. Less than one. <laughs> uh, what do you predict will be the next beer trend? Where are we on to? Irish stouts and saisons mixed. Whoa. Stout song. song. That sounds really awful. I, I so think, did some of those sours, and they sell like crazy. <laughs> That's <just> true. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for the uh, the the standard pale ale to become cool again. Yeah, yeah. It's never not been right, but we just get so. Or is it, we're just American, and we're like, we just need the next best thing all the time. And yeah, I think the pendulum swung right too far that way. I think it's gonna go end up back to the traditional. Because a lot of the places, I mean, if you look at it, a dozen beers, whatever they're having, yeah, they'll have a few weird niche ones, but the bulk of their stuff is going to be more the traditional kind of beers. That That's the most viable business model anyways. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, Seven Seas over in uh, the west side yeah. uh, came out with Heidelberg. Oh, yeah. And so they, they operate out of the old Heidelberg beer facility. Yeah. And yep. they brought yep. Yep. the recipe back. And mainly, though, what they're doing is they're bringing the branding and the nostalgia of uh, what American craft beer was before it was known as American craft beer. And part of me thinks that's, that's for me, I have an affinity for that. Like, I would gravitate towards that beer, that nice old American lager that, you know what I mean? Uh, then they should wait 20 years because I still remember being called H-bombs. I know, but it's just one <laughs> of those where it's at least it was in, like we associate craft with independence. And so you had these all these independent breweries. So even if they weren't, you know, the beer wasn't the greatest, at least they were independent. And so they hold on to that nostalgia. And to me, if all of a sudden there was a revival of Golden Age or if Shoddy came back mm -hmm. and it was the old label and you know what I mean? Even returnable bottles or something. I don't know how the, that would work, but to me that seems like that could be a trend. What do you think? Could be. Is I, that? I mean, I think that's sort of happened already, right? Like where I grew up, people, somebody brought Narragansett back. We talked about that earlier. Well, yeah, and they brought back Olympia and Rainier. Olympia's Rainier back and out here and... 
I think that sort of happened, uh, and, and certainly early 2000s, Pabst came back. Pabst was really right. hot. Um, yep. I don't know if Stroh's has come back or not. Yeah, uh, yeah. Stro- I mean, Stroh's is still. It's a lot of the ones in Michigan. Yeah. Uh, Heilman bought a lot of those, yep. and I was still drinking Altus when I was living in Illinois. Right. Uh, and that, what? Yeah. But it's all basically essentially the exact same beer, just dumped into a different container. So, but there is a certain niche of people that is going to buy that brand of beer. Oh my God! I drank that when I was a kid, and da da. They're going to drink that regardless of what. And it's the. Nostalgia is going to overtake that. God, this really tastes horrible. Yeah. But oh my God, yeah, I drank this when I was a kid. This is awesome. And, That's yeah. why my dad still drinks High Life, and I brew craft beer. <laughs> I, I so back to the original question. I, I, we, I think we talked about this before. I, I think uh, malt will become cool again, and uh, unique malts. I unique. Think that's, oh, okay. You know, I think that's. Uh, I think that's already started, and. I see that. I see that just even locally. That you know, our, our local malsters selling far and wide because they have unique product. It's going to be a, a twofold system, right? It's going to help craft uh, malt, but it's also going to put a strain because of production needs, right? That's and true. Supply chains. That's true. Yeah. 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 And there was already a shortage of uh, barley. Right. Like, uh, they were looking, looking ahead terrible. of a shortage. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the Luckily, smaller we could plant more. Yeah, well, the small the smaller malting companies had a store had a had a had a, a lot on right. hand, so yeah. cool. that could help them a lot. Yeah, that could help them a lot because I think some of the bigger ones are going to take a chance now, because the options are the international market price has gone up, and so if you're going to spend this much per pound, why not grab some local stuff? So right. I think. Link's going to find itself selling to a lot more bigger names that may have not wanted to take the risk right. prior. And, and they've perfected their malting in right. the last three years exactly. for sure. So perfect yeah. timing for them. It is. And uh, great. we definitely support Link. Cheers. 90% of our grain comes from Link Malt. Boop, boop. Cheers, Link Malt. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Yeah, Link Malt. They always come up in this show. Well, folks, it's closing time. When I think of St. Patrick's Day, it's often Irish music that comes to mind. So, Spokane, this one's for you. Of all the money that ere I had, I spent it in good company. And of all the harm that ere I done, alas, was done to none but me. For all I done, for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. Of all the comrades that ever I had, they're, they're sorry for my going away. And all the sweethearts that ever I had, they wish me one more day to stay. But since it fell into my lot that I should rise and you should not, I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass. And drink a health whatever befalls And gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Good night and joy be to you all Ladies and gentlemen, happy St. Patrick's Day. That's our show for tonight. Thank you. Thanks to our special guest, Nick Johnson of Inland Ale Works. And it's Dave Basarab and Tim Hilton of Mountain Lakes Brewing Company. Thanks to our wonderful servers, Brian and Tom. And thanks to all of you for being here. I am Chris Sindrick. Good night and joy be to you all. Drink up.